morning, everybody. Good to be with you all for a good service this morning. Uh, so Joe was asked to prepare something for us uh, on evidences of the resurrection. And uh, I understand he put a good bit of time into this this week. And uh, I think as he always did when he was given something to do. Uh, and so he was I'm sure disappointed that he couldn't be with us this morning. Um, so I'm honored to be able to share his notes. The, uh, just a comment or two on Brother Joe. You know, he's, he's always impressed me as, as an intelligent man. Uh, he's always been a scholar. He's lived his life as a student. And uh, I look up to him. I think we can continue to learn and study long after we're out of school. And I, I, I've appreciated his example there. But he's not just a student of fact. He's a man of faith. And uh, I've been blessed to see that in his life. Uh, and I think he touches on that in his notes. I haven't spent much time with these notes. Just stop them before, before church this morning. So I will, I will read these thoughts as they are, are written here. Again, it's entitled, Evidences for the Resurrection. It is very clear from reading the New Testament that the resurrection of Jesus is the focal point of the Gospel. You could actually say that the resurrection is the focal point of the entire Scriptures for the people of God. The resurrection is also often the focal point of the opposition to Christianity by the adversary and his forces. If they can introduce doubt about the resurrection in a person's mind, their work has been largely successful. Basic facts are clearly part of the New Testament record, and Christians can accept them with certainty. The evidence of the resurrection is both broad and deep. There are basic facts, certainly. Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. He was buried. The disciples were devastated and despondent. But a few days after the tomb was found empty, and over the next 40 days, his disciples and other followers had experiences that they fully believed were the actual appearance of the risen Jesus. The evidence for the resurrection is more than a simple verification of details. Because of these details, the disciples were thoroughly changed. They were now willing to die for their testimony about Jesus and His resurrection. People don't die to protect a lie. The proclamation of the resurrection first took place in Jerusalem where, had Jesus not risen, the Jews would have been more than happy to open the tomb and prove that there was a decaying body inside. Instead, the Sanhedrin staged a cover-up of their own. More I'm sorry, most evidences for historical events is contained in documents, and the resurrection is no different in that respect. 
What is different about documentary evidence for the resurrection is that there is almost an embarrassment of riches in many areas. And then we have six points here. Number one is time. The closer the time when a document is written to the date of the actual event, the more likely it is to be untainted by poor memories or fanciful embellishment. The resurrection occurred in 30 A.D. The Gospels were written, Mark, in 70 A.D., 40 years after, to John in 90 A.D., 50 years after. Paul's writings are even earlier. 1 Corinthians was written in 55 A.D., only 25 years after the resurrection. Moreover, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, 11, notice Paul's inserted briefly here, uh, this is that group of scriptures that starts where I delivered to you first of all that I received, uh, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried and so forth. So 1 Corinthians 15, 3, 11 is believed to be an even earlier Christian creed that Paul likely received within five years of the resurrection. By contrast, all the information we have on Alexander the Great is taken from two sources written more than 500 years after his death. Number two, the number of copies of documents. Here again, the New Testament is far in advance of the rest of the field. From the 1st to 3rd centuries A.D., there are some 25 to 30,000 copies of the New Testament, from fragments of a few verses to entire books, or groups of books, or even the New Testament in its entirety. The New Testament was highly prized and consequently carefully preserved. No other ancient text compares. Number three, eyewitness testimony. The New Testament record was written either by eyewitnesses themselves, Matthew, John, Peter, James, Paul, and Jude, or by close associates of eyewitnesses, Mark and Luke. Their written records were read and shared in the presence of those same eyewitnesses and many more who would have said, no, it didn't happen that way. This is what happened. Number four, accurate copying. Ancient docu- documents were hand copied. In comparing 1,400 years of hand copying the New Testament, the discrepancies that are evident in the latest examples compared to the earliest ones over around 2% of the entire New Testament. The gospel was considered precious and handled with extreme care. Five, accurate reporting. One of the ways that reported events can be verified is by looking at the details embedded in the accounts and checking their accuracy. Geography, cultural details and customs, political figures, and even the accuracy of Luke, nautical terms, as he describes Paul's voyages on the Mediterranean Sea. Archaeology has time and again proven the New Testament to be impeccably accurate. Six, 
attestation by outside observers. While there is not very much detail in extra-biblical references to New Testament events, there are very significant references to Jesus. That there was one Jesus, the Nazarene, that he taught and had a following, that he was crucified and died, that he was reported to have risen, that he was seen alive, and that Christians were willing to die for what they believed. These reports come from a number of first-century Jewish writers, the historian Josephus and several Roman historians. There are many theories and scenarios that have been put forward to cast doubt on the resurrection. Without exception, each one claims to have an alternate explanation for one part of the resurrection story and ignores the other facts. A glaring example is the swoon theory that claims Jesus must have fainted on the cross, was taken down before he died, and was buried and revived in the tomb and survived. It completely overlooks the brutality of a Roman crucifixion, the spear wound in his side, and the fact that three days later he walked in the 10 to 12 miles to Emmaus in the company of two adults in earnest conversation he would have gone further alone had he been invited to share a meal with them. Many of the other alternative theories accept as authentic documents sorry, let me read that, accept as authentic documents that were written from 200 to 500 A.D. and they reject the New Testament record, which was written 25 to 60 years after the resurrection. The New Testament record gives a coherent explanation of the entire resurrection story. Verifying the facts does not make faith less necessary or less important. For me, the study and reading I have done over the years in apologetics in general, and the resurrection in particular, have added a wealth of glowing coals to the flame of faith I already had. Our faith has a solid basis in the reality of a living Christ. It also has a solid basis in actual events of history. And it has a solid hope. Just as certain as what happened that day in the end of the Sabbath as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week is the promise of, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Good morning. Good to be with you this morning. I really enjoyed um, I enjoyed the service so far, and, and especially enjoyed um, what Joe put together there. That was a, that was a blessing. Uh, the sermon I have to share with you is is uh, came about a little bit differently than most messages in that uh, I didn't start it; Dad did. Uh, he was collecting scriptures and organizing things, and um, and then after I um, volunteered to take his place this morning, I kind of picked up from where he started and and um, added my commentary to it. 
what I'll be touching on this morning is, is um, a fairly basic question. If, if someone asks you, you know, we believe that uh, we have been crucified and risen with Christ, that we have experienced the resurrection with Christ, in Christ. And if someone asks you, well, what does that mean? I mean, really, what, is, what does that mean for you? What about you changed when you rose with Christ? And, and I'm going to uh, briefly answer that question this morning by looking at four different areas in which a person who has risen with Christ uh, is different and four attributes of a resurrected life. Uh, and the four areas I'm focusing are are purpose, hope, joy, and power. Uh, that's not a complete list at all. I'm not touching on the fact that We've been forgiven, for example, um, as not, I'm not talking about really the fruits of the Spirit much, uh, so there's many other things we could add to this list, but these four that I'm focusing on are purpose, hope, joy, and power. And as we look at each of these, I think we'll see that uh, there's, there's, for each point, there is both a, a call to action on our part and, and a call to worship. So let's go to Second Corinthians chapter 5. To start with, uh, looking at this purpose. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'll, I'll read verses 14 through 17. Paul has just been talking about uh, the fact, uh, or explaining why he and, and the other apostles lived such a radical life, basically. And in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 5, he says, For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In these verses, according to Paul, why did Christ die? It was to enable people to live their lives completely differently. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their faith died and was raised. You know what's wrong with people? What's wrong with people is just in, in the most basic, fundamental thing is, is that they live for themselves. People live for themselves. That is what is most broken about people. They live for self and they cannot fix that. But Christ's death and resurrection made it possible for the thing that was most, really, the most broken thing about us to be made right and that we can live for Christ. Uh, those who are in Christ and have died and risen with Christ don't live for themselves anymore. It's, that's a huge change. I mean, there is nothing you can change about a person that will change him more than what he lived for. That permeates every area of your life, what you live for. And so when that gets changed drastically, every area of your life will feel the shockwave. Uh, in the King James Version, you know that it, it says, um, 
all things have become new. King James using a, uh, a different Greek text than what the ESV uses here. And, and this idea of all things becoming new, in, in my mind, it speaks to the fact that every area of our life is affected by this thing. And, and so to live for self after uh, being risen from the dead is uh, unthinkable. To me, uh, to illustrate that would be uh, the scene at the tomb where Lazarus was risen from the dead. And Lazarus comes out and he is unwrapped and uh, everyone is exclaiming over the fact that Lazarus was once dead and now he's alive again. This is wonderful. Lazarus is chatting with, with his disciples and he says, you know, it's been nice talking you guys, but um, you know, I think I'll just go back, back inside the tomb again. My little man cave back there, and um, I'm just going to go lie down on that that uh, stone couch and just hold real still for a long time. And uh, Martha, you know, it'd be nice to bring you meals three times a day. And 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 you know, Martha would say, Jesus, something is not right here. Something's wrong with me. Um, definitely, he's not going to be helping me serve in the kitchen anytime soon. That, that whole thing would just be backward. It, it would be unthinkable. But when someone is risen with Christ, they are recreated with a new purpose. Ephesians 2.10, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works to which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So the first attribute of a resurrected life is a changed purpose. And for me, the, the call to action is to live completely for Christ and to surrender every area of my life to Him and to completely get out of the cave, leave it behind, don't look back. And I think it's good for us to remember also that there are, uh, in, in every area of our life, in many things that we do that are every day in mundane, uh, we can do this for Christ. We can do them for Christ. Um, they don't all have to be necessarily uh, directly you know, religious activities or something. You can do these things for Christ. That's the call to action. The call to praise is simply to praise God that He made this kind of transformation possible through the death and resurrection. The second attribute uh, is in First Peter. You turn to First Peter, chapter one. We'll be spending a fair amount of time there, and, and this attribute is what I, what I call living hope, or Peter refers to as living hope. First Peter, chapter one, verses three through six. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Christ Jesus. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So he's saying, through the resurrection of Christ, we've been born again to a living hope. We, we have a hope that is possible only because of the resurrection. It's living, it grows, it produces fruit. And, and by the way, you probably know this, that, that, the, that the Greek word for hope is not a wishful thinking kind of hope. It, it refers to something... Uh, more, much more solid than that. It's, it's more like a confident expectation. And what are we hoping? What are we looking forward to? Peter goes on in verse four. 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So we are hoping, we are expecting this inheritance kept in heaven, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's a hope that will not let us down. And there's, there are so many things in this world that we can look forward to and hope in, and when it comes to actually happen, you know, it's not really that. Kind of a letdown. Colleen and I went to a fancy restaurant once, and uh, somewhat fancy, and we were, you know, kind of excited about this seafood restaurant. I had high expectations, and it had high prices, and Colleen had purple orchids on her salad. But the food was just not that great, actually. I mean, it was fine, but it wasn't quite what I was expecting, and I was dissatisfied. I went home and ate a hot dog afterwards. So many things in, in this, this world are we turn out to be a letdown in one degree or another. But what we're hoping for here, our living hope will not disappoint us. Uh, it is an inheritance that will not disappoint us. The second attribute of a, of a resurrected life is living hope. And, and the call to action is to be more aware of, of what God has in store for us, um, to remember it more often, and um, just how wonderful that is. And the call to praise is, is to praise God for that inheritance and for that hope that, that drives us and gives us uh, endurance and joy, which is the next attribute to look at. Unsnatchable joy, that's what I call this one. We, we read this verses in First Peter, and, and uh, he said, when, when describing our hope of inheritance, he said, in this you rejoice. Now, I want to take a, a minute and look at what the disciples experienced when they realized that Jesus had risen from the dead, and I wanted, wanted to com- want to compare that with what we ought to experience. Uh, back before Jesus was crucified, in John chapter 16, Jesus basically told the disciples kind of what to expect. Though I'm not sure if it really helped them that much at the time. But in verse 20 of John 16, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is given, giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. I won't bother asking any of you mothers how literally to take that. For joy that a human being has been born into the world, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And the fulfillment happened in John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, 
where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples, the ESV says, were glad, which is maybe a bit of an understatement. The New American Standard says, Rejoice when they saw the Lord. In, in Luke it says, They would not believe for joy. Uh, so that was the men disciples. The lady disciples who went down to the tomb, they, it says, they left the tomb with fear and great joy. And, and the thing is, this, this joy the disciples had, it, it didn't, um, it wasn't joy they just had when Jesus was with them. When, when he ascended to, to heaven, it doesn't say they went home all gloomy. It says they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. So Jesus told them, because you will see me again, your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. He's basically saying that when you realize that I have risen from the dead, you will be filled with a joy that no one can take from you. When you believe that, when, it's really come, when you come to grips with it, you will be filled with a joy no one will take from you. And, and so, as believers this morning, it seems to me that that statement should be equally true about us. As, as believers in the resurrection, we should also have that kind of joy. Also, in First Peter chapter one, we didn't read these verses yet. Verse eight: Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him. You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Do you have joy that is inexpressible? Here's a joke. Why do so many Christians look so gloomy? Because their joy is inexpressible. No, not at all. That's not really. Very good excuse. I think the sad truth is Christians are gloomy because they've, they've forgotten about their inheritance. Maybe they're worried about things they shouldn't be, or maybe they're just in fear. But the third attribute of a resurrected life should be unsnatchable joy. And the call to action is to rejoice more. No one can take your joy from you, but I think we can rob ourselves. Rejoice more. And then, and, and the call to praise is to praise God for the gift of joy that only He gives. The fourth attribute of a resurrected life is divine power. Let's go back to the, the theme. I keep going back to the story of Lazarus because I think it's useful for illustration and purposes. Let's go back to Lazarus at, at the um, his resurrection. And let's say Jesus had rolled the stone away and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And nothing really happened. And so finally, Peter, it would, it would have been Peter, rushes into the tomb and comes back kind of amazed and worried. He says, he's, he's got a pulse, but he's barely breathing. He's not moving a muscle. 
And so Peter and John go back into the tomb and they carry Lazarus out and they lay him down and they dump some cold water on his face and, and Lazarus' eyes flutter open and he says, Man, I feel awful. And he can't even sit up. And so they carry him back to Bethany where he spends the rest of his life as an invalid. That would be a pretty terrible resurrection story, wouldn't it? You know, this has new life, but no strength. Um, but we can thank God that when he gave new life, he also gave new power. And, and you know, you can kind of see this even in Jesus himself, that after the resurrection, he did things that he didn't do beforehand. I don't know if it was new power or just less limitations or what, but he's you know, just appearing there in the room and so on. He didn't have the same kind of limitations. In Ephesians chapter 1, uh, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read these verses starting at verse 16. This is a, one of Paul's really long sentences. So you kind of have to follow it carefully. Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know, and then he gives three things that we would know, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, or he's already referred to hope and inheritance, the same thing Peter talks about, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us to believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. In those verses, Paul is essentially saying that the same kind of power that God worked in Christ uh, when he raised him from the dead is at work in our lives. There's a new power for those who have risen with Christ. What exactly is it, does this power do for us? What is God working in us through the Spirit? Uh, we already read this part in 1 Peter 1. I don't know if you noticed this when we read it, but uh, in 1 Peter 1, verse 5, he says, You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. God's power is guarding us. It reminds me of the verse in 1 John chapter 5 where he says, Everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. That verse talks about God's protection from evil, and specifically talks about not, not keeping all the sin. A resurrected life has new power so that we can live a life for Christ and not for ourselves and not be a slave to sin. Romans 6. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in the resurrection like his. The fourth attribute of a resurrected life is divine power. And the call to action is to live that power out, uh, to believe 
that we have the power to live above sin, to walk in the Spirit, and to call us to praise is praise God for His protecting and enabling power. So if someone asks you, what is the difference? What are, what are some, of the, some of the things that are different about you if you have risen with Christ? What, what are some things that have changed? I hope you would think of your purpose has changed. You have a new hope, a living hope. You have unsnatchable joy. And you have divine power. And, and for each of these things, um, we should be praising God today, especially and living these things in our lives. God bless you.